Good morning. Good morning to you at home. Uh, as Joey said, we're going to be taking a break in our book in the book of Luke. It's our practice at Restoration Church to work through books of the Bible line by line. And uh, it's also our practice to, to preach straight to the Christian and address the person that is not a Christian. However, we're going to sort of invert that for the next few weeks. Uh, this morning, we're going to start a short sermon series that is aimed at helping those that are considering following Jesus to understand the vision of Jesus. Uh, all too often, at least it's been my experience, all too often Christianity is reduced to simply being a better person or maybe praying a prayer, reading your Bible, going to church, important things. And yet far too few people have been able to hear how Christianity understands where we have been and where we are going. And even fewer people uh, have heard, have the privilege to hear the vision of Christ amidst all of that. And so for the next four weeks, we want to help those that are considering following Jesus to understand the vision of Christ. Uh, not only what He has done, but what He is doing and what He will do. And so for our church, Restoration Church, uh, I hope that these sermons will serve as good reminders for us as to what we believe, again, as to who we are, uh, and as to what we hope in as to where we are going. So this week, we consider the question, what is humanity? What is humanity? Is there anything special about us? Anything distinct about humanity? Or are we just a slightly more enlightened creature that is non uh, that is not unlike other creatures. And so I do not intend to answer all of your questions. I especially can't do that in 30 to 35 minutes. Uh, but again, I want to help you understand the heart or the vision of Christ amidst these questions of what about humanity. And again, what Jesus has to do with all of this. Uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at humanity in each stage of the Bible's storyline. And so for those of you that are not Christians, you likely know that we as Christians believe that the Bible is authoritative for us, authoritative for life and doctrine. Uh, you may not know that we as Christians believe that the Bible is not a randomly collected book of stories, but it is intentionally placed together. Uh, so in that sense, it is like other books in the sense that it has an introduction and a storyline and a conclusion. But it is unlike other books in that we, again, believe that it is authoritative. So we'll think more about what the Bible is next week. But it's important for you to know today that as we take a look at Scripture, we're going to be answering from Scripture what Christians believe about humanity. Uh, and we're going to look at it from those four perspectives, that kind of four stages of the Bible. Uh, those four stages are as follows. They are creation, then fall, then redemption, and then restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's the four stages of the Bible. So creation would be Genesis 1 and 2, the first two books, or first book of the Bible, the first two chapters. Fall would then be Genesis 3, straight on through into the end of the Old Testament. Redemption appears when Christ appears in the New Testament. And then restoration is kind of overlapped with redemption, but its final conclusion is there in that last book of the Bible, Revelation. And so when considering humanity, what does God teach us from the Bible about humanity? We're going to spend most of our time in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. So if you're having a place you want to look at, that would be the place to go. Just open up your Bible to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Let me pray again just briefly for us in anticipation of God's Word. 
Father, we do thank you for your word, and we pray that we would properly understand your intentions for us as human beings. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So in considering humanity, what does the first stage of creation teach us about humanity? Well, I believe that it teaches us six things in that first chapter alone, those six things. And the six things in there, that teaches us the kind of what we as Christians believe about humanity, the what we believe. So since this is introductory, we'll just kind of take a brief look at those six things. But in the first book of Genesis, we see that God makes the world. We see that he creates land and sea, sun and moon. He creates plants and trees and animals. And at the end of each day, the Lord says, and it was good, and it was good. But on the sixth day of creation, God creates mankind. He creates humanity. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. They can make him in our image. And in Genesis chapter 2, we get more detail of how the Lord formed the man first and then the woman and how he breathes life into humanity. And so the first thing that we learn about what Christians believe about humanity is that humanity was created. It's created. And so we did not make ourselves, we did not magically appear by some random set of forces since no one or anything has ever moved from chaos to order on its own. So mankind was created. And we were created, we were made by the one true and living God. And so there we see in our being made, we see that we are having a kind of, we have a kind of design to us, indicating that there must be a designer, right? And so there's design all around us when we look around, right? There's design to photosynthesis, indicates design, and also the molecular makeup of our bodies indicates design, which indicates then a designer, a creator, so, for instance, if you and I were to go take a walk through a forest and we were to walk around in that forest and we were to randomly appear to this beautiful garden, you and I both would agree, Christian or not, that where this beautiful manicured garden is, there must be what? Must be a gardener. So in the same way, when we look around at the design of the world, it indicates that there must be a designer to humanity and that designer is God. But the second thing we learn about mankind that we as Christians believe is that we were not only created, but we were created in the image of God. The image of God. You can see it there, or heard it there in verse 26 of chapter 1. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. It says the same thing in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Now what does that mean exactly, to be created in the image of God? Well, friend, answering that question will be important for you to understand because it is answering this question of what the image of God means for humanity that sets what we believe sets us apart from, say, apes and alligators, this notion of being created in the image of God. So to be created in the image of God means that we were created, human beings were created with a unique reality of having a relationship with God. We could know something of God. We can know God and enjoy God. And so therefore, because of that ability for humans to have a relationship with God, to know God, we then have the responsibility to say something about God to the world since we can know something about it. So one way in which we can define this image of God then is to mean that we were created with the ability to know God and therefore based upon that, we then should show God. We should image Him to the world that He has made. 
And so everywhere you go on planet Earth, you will find some sort of religion everywhere. If you go to India, if you go to some place in Africa, if you go someplace in East Asia, you will find houses of worship everywhere you go because man has this instinct to worship. That's part of the image of God. However, if we were again to go take a walk through, say, Shenandoah National Forest, we would not find any houses of worship amongst the animals. Right? Because animals don't know to worship God. They weren't created with that ability. They don't have the image of God within them. Human beings can know something of the divine and that leads them to be able to display something of the divine. Which explains why human beings have uh, amazing capacities to create things. Take, for instance, transportation. Consider just in the last 100, 150, 200 years how we've moved from the wheel to the wagon to cars to jet planes. When in that same exact span in time, the last 100, 200 years, we see red snappers, beavers, and great blue herons flying, transporting in the same way that they have in the same span of time. And this is due in part to humanity's ability to know the Creator and then image Him as a Creator to the world that He has made. And you'll notice this ability to know something of God is going to have a direct correlation to what happens in the fall. You'll see that in a minute. But this aspect of humanity as created in the image of God explains why we as Christians believe, why I believe all of humanity believes instinctively that all humanity is to be created or is to be treated with dignity. Be treated with dignity, whether they are Christians or not. It explains, for instance, why Christians are pro-life from start to finish. Friends, for us, it is not primarily political. For us, it is primarily theological and doxological. It explains, for instance, why we care about babies, why we care about the denigration of black and brown lives. It explains why we care about senior citizens who have to be quarantined in these days of the pandemic. We care about all of them. It's because of our understanding of human beings being created in the image of God. It explains why we, sh- we believe that we should love our enemies. Because there's something about the dignity of humanity that God has made that we should be careful with and love always. But thirdly, we find that not only was humanity created in the image of God, we see that humanity was created male and female. So there's mankind, or humanity is one essence with two distinct genders. Just as God is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. You can see that in verse 27 of Genesis chapter 1. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so the two are equal in dignity and worth. Say that again. The two are equal in dignity and in worth. One is not more important than the other. Again, just as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are equally God, but they have distinct responsibilities, so it is with humanity. Male and female have Uh, are equal with distinct responsibilities. And so God designed us male and female in order in part to procreate, to fill the world with a people that would then image him to the world. And they would do that together. And that leads us to the fourth thing that we believe as Christians about humanity. Uh, Namely, that we were created to work. Christians believe that humanity was created to work. Look again at verse 26 of chapter 1 in Genesis. Second half says, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of heavens 
and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And you'll notice that it says that very same thing two verses later in verse 28. And so as we've talked about before, since humanity is uniquely created in the image of God, therefore God sets mankind over all of the earth in order to image him. And part of that imaging is to be fruitful, to multiply with a people that would work to cultivate and flourish the earth. To have children who would have children inside of the bonds of marriage who would then go on to cultivate the earth and make it flourish through their working. And so we, saw, we see that again when we think about the storyline of the Bible, how it starts in a garden and ends in a city, working. And so friends, you may have heard uh, that we as Christians don't believe in science or reason. Uh, well, that couldn't be any further from the truth. If that was the case, a quarter of our members who are scientists would probably not be part of this church. But some of the greatest scientists, doctors, educators, and architects were Christians. And it was their faith that led them to investigate the world in order to try and make the world a better place for human beings. God made us to work. He made us to think about ways, to create ways in order to have it to flourish for the glory of God all the more. And it's also important to note that we as Christians believe God did not only create uh, us to work so that we would make the world flourish, but he created us to work because God is a working God. It's exactly what we see in uh, the first six days. God is working and then he rests on the seventh. God, in that way, we image God when we work. The fifth thing that we learn about what Christians believe about humanity is that we were created for community. We were created for community. In Genesis 2:18, the Lord says, "It is not good that the man should be alone." Now this passage leads to the formation of marriage, but the principle, of course, is the same. Man is not to be isolated. A man was made to flourish in community. And once again, this was done to image God since God, as the one God that is triune, was in community with himself from forever. Father loving the Son, Son loving the Father, Spirit loving the Son from forever. And so therefore, he created mankind to image him by being in community with one another. It was not good that they would be alone because God is not alone. As a friend, you should know, as you investigate the Christian faith, you should know that your desire for community is right. Your desire for justice is right. These desires are instincts within you because you were created in his image to display these things because they say something about what God is like. He built you for these things. He built you in his image, male and female, to work, to be in community, and he did all of this ultimately, this is the sixth thing, he did all of this ultimately for his glory for his praise this is what we as christians believe is the great end of humanity to know and enjoy god the god that made us i realize that when i say that being created in the image of god to glorify god i realize that when i say that some of you may think well isn't that arrogant of god isn't that prideful of god so for instance if i were to create a chair for my glory if i were to be preaching for my glory Right? You would correctly understand that's arrogant, that's prideful, and it's wrong. However, the reason why we think that is because, friends, we are not ultimate. We are not ultimate. God is. God is ultimate. God is the one of whom we are made to enjoy. And so, therefore, just as a properly built Ford truck honors Henry Ford, or just as a 
properly built iPhone honors Steve Jobs. So in the same way, a creation, a fine-tooled world, a humanity that is existing inside of the intentions of its maker, so it serves to glorify God, make much of Him. Friends, you've probably heard of the Ten Commandments, I'm sure. And maybe you know that first commandment that says that you should have no other gods before Him. And that's because, again, God is ultimate. He is of supreme worth. There is nothing and no one more valuable than He is. Therefore, God obeys the first commandment. He has no other gods before Him. He has no thing, no idols before Him. He instead is perfectly consistent and wise to keep that command. The problem comes, friends, when we in creation do not image Him like this. And instead of glorifying Him, we serve to glorify ourselves, which leads us to the second phase of the story of Scripture. So if the first, those, to summarize what we've said so far, this is the kind of what of what Christians believe about humanity. We were created in the image of God, male and female, to work, to be in community, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth for the glory of God. That's the what of what Christians believe about humanity. But where humanity went wrong was when all of this gets inverted. So what comes next is the kind of what's wrong with humanity question. In Genesis chapter 3, we find Satan, who is an enemy of God, a fallen angel, is disguised as a serpent. He tempts Adam and Eve, which are the two, first two humans that he's made, first two persons. He tempts them to eat of the one tree that the Lord told them not to eat from. God gave them thousands of trees. Just don't eat of this one. And so Satan tempts Adam and Eve to eat of that tree. And what he does is three things. The way that he tempts them, he does it three ways. First, he uses the beauty of the fruit and the thought of the deliciousness of the fruit to lead them into disobedience. And the second thing he does is he further contradicts the word of the Lord by telling them that if they eat of this fruit, they won't die, even though the Lord told them they would. And the third thing that he does is he tells them that if they eat it, they would be like God. They would be God-like. And so if I could kind of simplify all these things for you, we might say it like this. If God made man ultimately to love him and to love our neighbor as ourselves, all three of those things Satan uses to tempt Adam and Eve, what he does is the exact opposite of loving God and neighbor. What he does is he tempts them to love themselves more than God and to serve themselves more than neighbor. And so they were enticed by the sight of the fruit. They were enticed by the thought that they couldn't die. They were enticed, uh, most of all, that they could be like God themselves. And so what we find is that individual autonomy and sensuality led to their rebellion against their designer. Individual autonomy, the thought of individual autonomy and sensuality led to the, their rebellion against their designer. And so that leads them to do, Adam and Eve, leads them to do the thing contrary to their created order. It leads them to distrust God and instead trust themselves to be God-like. A temptation which eventually leads what we call sin or rebellion into the world, which then leads death into the world. It introduces this instinct now that exists in all of humanity to trust ourselves more than God, to trust our instincts more than God. And that choice Adam and Eve 
causes this pervasiveness to now exist in all of humanity and in all of the world. Like a drop of poison, just one tiny drop of poison enters into a glass and poisons it all. So their choice entered in and poisoned the world. And that death, friends, that came into Adam and Eve and eventually to us, that death was not only physical, but it was immediately spiritual since we are both physical and spiritual beings. Adam and Eve would not only die physically, but they were immediately separated from God because He is holy. He is set apart from us. He is pure. He's the author of life. So that spiritual death happens immediately. And so mankind is basically self-interested because of its disconnection from God. And yet there's still in the world today this glimmer of beauty and morality at the same time. And yet at the same time, we have this glimmer of morality and beauty. It's coexisting with this sin and death. It's all around us. This pandemic has forced us here in the West to think about death, hasn't it? We have, for now quite some time, we have found ways here in the West to kind of push death to the edges of our society. Kind of take all of the senior citizens that might die in cemeteries and push them out of our mindset. And yet this pandemic has forced us to consider death. It's brought us to the center of it. So sin or rebellion against God is the cultivation of death in the soul of man. And by extension, into all the world. Sin is like a Ford engine, again, rebelling against Henry Ford. Or an iPhone, rebelling against Steve Jobs. Sin and rebellion against God only eventually leads like it would to an iPhone or to a Ford truck. It only leads eventually to death and insignificance. Think about that old Ford truck off in the back of the woods with weeds growing through it because it stopped working and the tensions with its master. And here's what's interesting, if not tragic, about this notion of sin and death. Our society tends to think that what mankind needs in order to flourish is to be free from the law. What we tend to think is, is if we could just push, push the law to the sides, to the edges, if we can have an expulsion of the law, then we would be free. They see law as opposing freedom. And yet the fewer things we can impose, is the, here's the thinking goes, the fewer things that we can impose on people, we think, the better mankind will be. And quite frankly, friends, I don't even feel the need to spend that much time showing how that's just not true. It's self-evident that that doesn't work. The more that we take the kind of, if we think about a road, the more that we take the kind of guardrails down off the road, we erase the lines on the road, we take down the speed limits, signs, the more dangerous driving becomes. The more dangerous our world becomes, our lives become. Friend, hear this. The guardrails, the lines on the roads, the speed limit signs are good gifts to cars. And by extension, good gifts to us. They keep us from falling off of the side of the mountain and from crashing into each other. In other words, they keep us from death. And don't lose sight of this. And they lead us to something. They lead us to life. They lead us to enjoy the mountain vista as we look down into the valley of the sea without fear of death. God gave us laws to free, not enslave. iPhone laws lead them to do stuff that are good or helpful. Sometimes. 
And so therefore, the more that we try to push humanity into the center and God and His laws into the edge, the more death that we're finding in our midst, both spiritual and physical. So God loved the world by helping us understand that He made it to work in a certain way. The more you and I push His design and His intentions out, the more we should not be surprised by the death that comes in. So that then leads us to consider, what does the world need? What does humanity need? Humanity needs redemption and restoration. Redemption and restoration. Redemption meaning we need to be bought back from slavery to ourselves and bought back to know and enjoy God as we were intended, as our design would have had us to do. And secondly, uh, with that spiritual redemption of reconciliation with our God, we need a restoration even of our bodies since God made us not only spiritual but also physical. What we need, friends, is grace. Grace to redeem, grace to restore. Grace to redeem and grace to restore. And wonder of wonders. That's exactly what God has given us. Showing how good a God He is. That moves us into chapter 3 of the Bible storyline. We've seen creation. We've seen fall, the introduction of uh, sinfulness. And then third chapter, redemption. This is the kind of answer uh, that we would give as Christians as to how the world is made right again. Redemption. After chapter 3, we get the story after story uh, of Genesis 3. We get story after story of God choosing a people for himself, giving them yet again his good and gracious laws meant to reform them, reform them to say, don't do this, do that. Go here, don't go there, that sort of thing. The kind of guardrails, the painted lines, the speed limits. He gives those things to them. And yet in the Old Testament, we see story after terrible story of even the most choicest servants rebelling against him, pushing self into center and God to the edges. We see this from Abraham to the people of Israel to the great King David. If you've ever wondered about the strangeness and the utter depravity of the Old Testament, this is why. That's the point. The testimony of the Old Testament is that due to our innate corruption of sin, our instincts for self, we then cannot image God. Even if God gives us everything like good prophets and laws and a land, it still can't be done because we are that broken. That's the big idea of the Old Testament. The last line in the Old Testament is haunted by generational sin, by pain and longings to be restored as a people. They needed. We need, you and I need, all of us need to be redeemed by grace back to God. Because it is evident in the Old Testament and right in our own experience, no matter how hard we try to do good, we can't. And when we turn the page, the last line of the Old Testament into the New Testament, we see redemption. You see, Right after the fall in Genesis chapter 3, God promises to not give up on the world that he has made for himself. He promises to send one that would crush sin and death. And later he promises that that one would be born of the line of a guy named Abraham and a guy named David. And he also said that he would be born of a virgin, indicating his deity, indicating that he is of the Holy Father. And this one of whom the Old Testament predicts that will come to crush sin and death is none other than Jesus the Christ. Jesus, the name, means Savior. Christ is not his last name. That means anointed one. He's the Christ. 
Messiah. And Jesus is also given another name. He's given the name Emmanuel, which means God with humanity. God with us. <laughs> In the second person of the Trinity, God visited the world he made in order to redeem it. He took on humanity, Jesus did, while losing none of his deity. All of Jesus' miracles, friends, were not only an indication that he was divine. It's something, it means that in part, but even more though, his miracles were indicating of what his kingdom was like. That he has come to redeem it and to restore it back to the way that it should be. He came to seek and to save that which was lost and make it right again. To have a people, a world full of people that are redeemed and restored through adoption. How? By his blood. Because in blood is life. And so here's what we find. Remember what we said in the beginning of Genesis 1 that we were created in the image of God? Well, Jesus, friend, the Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, 16 says that Jesus was the image of the invisible God. We see that he was not created, but he did take on flesh. We find that he was male, and he did work, and he did have dominion over the earth. The serpent did not have dominion over him as he was tempted in the wilderness just as humanity was, and yet he overcame temptation. He was in community. And therefore, Jesus the Christ was able uniquely to make an atoning sacrifice for the sinfulness of humanity in the ways that I couldn't or you couldn't. He was perfectly God and perfectly man who lived a sinless life that was, again, the image of the invisible God. And therefore, his blood on the cross was the payment for the sinfulness of man. That payment went to his Father to pay for all those that believe and trust on him. And that payment then is received by the Father in his righteousness, Jesus' righteousness, is then transferred to the redeemed, to those that love him and trust him. This is the amazing reality. This is why Jesus was both God and man. He was man in that he could identify us and he was God in that we could then be with God again. And it was all the transaction was by his body and his blood suffering on the cross. That's why Christians have a cross all the time because that is the mechanism of deliverance, of redemption, his blood being sacrificed there on the cross. But that's not all. Not only did his blood redeem, there was the cost of redemption. On the third day, so significantly, he rose from the grave. He rose from the grave and his resurrection indicates his victory over sin and death and it indicates a new creation which is what we have wanted, right? Which is what you want, I'm sure. Listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 22. Jesus' resurrection is a first fruits of the many that will come after him. And be redeemed and restored eventually. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 22 says, and list, by the way, listen, listen to the, to the play on the first Adam and the second Adam. Listen for that. Paul, the Apostle Paul says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those that died, who have died. For as by man came death, there's Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. There's Jesus. And then he makes it together. For as in Adam all die, that's the first Adam, so also in Christ shall all who believe be made alive. 
right? So the mechanism that brought death, Jesus enters into that, overcomes it, so that by him we then can be made alive. And so what was deformed in the world by sin is being reformed in Christ. There's a guy that lived in the fourth century, in the 300s, whose name was Greg. He went by Gregory. Greg was his name, Gregory of Nanzanias, and he says, what Christ has not assumed, he has not healed. In other words, since Christ assumed all of humanity and overcame it in the cross and in his life, death on the cross, and in his resurrection, he then is able to overcome all of humanity's sin and death. And we that a believer then adopted into his family that we might know him and then be able to show him by the power of his spirit. We are then a new creation. Which indicates, friends, this is so important. Don't lose sight of this. When you're thinking about the vision of Christianity, this is important to understand. Jesus doesn't bring in a new religious possibility. It's not as though this new thing called Christianity started in the first century AD. That's not what's going on. Jesus doesn't bring in a new religious possibility nor some new ethic. He brings in a new creation. And so that leads us to the final chapter of our story of the world and our humanity. This, is, this final is the great hope of Christians. This, for instance, is why we called our church Restoration Church, because we want to keep this end in sight. And that final stage is restoration. This is answering the question, where is humanity going? Restoration. At the very end of the Bible, Jesus says in Revelation 21.5, Behold, I am making all things new. Christ has redeemed and is redeeming his people from the curse of sin. Our humanity is sort of in between those chapters 3 and 4 of the Bible story. And for those that repent of their sin, the sin that rebels against God and brings death to self, for those that repent of sin and then trust in Christ, that treasure Christ, trust him, Jesus the Christ and his atoning sacrifice and resurrection, Jesus redeems them. He adopts us into his family. And he delivers unto us that believe. Spiritually, he delivers his spirit into our lives. And he has given us his spirit, which sanctifies us, guys, slowly. <laughs> wondering why Christians still make really bad choices that's why sinner sinner saved and is being saved God inserts his uh, spirit into us just as he did in the tabernacle of old we now are the tabernacle in the new covenant cleansing our humanity from one degree of glory to another until eventually we will not only be justified we will not only be redeemed we will not only be adopted we will God's word says be glorified in him his resurrection will become our resurrection. That's why it's called the first fruits. And we will finally image God as we were intended to do from the beginning, in word and in deed, in attitude and in action, spiritually and physically on a fully restored earth, which we call heaven. And so we await, this is our great hope, we await for Christ to return to finish what he has begun. And so towards that end, to my non-Christian friend, as your penchant for hunger points to the reality of food, as your penchant for thirst points to the reality of water, 
your desire for a better world, for a better humanity, is real. And it finds its consummation, finds its answer in Jesus Christ. We who hope in Christ will have what we desire. A world full of love and a place of pristine beauty as we work, as we are in community, and as we gather to eat with Jesus the Christ. That's what the Lord's Supper you see us take. That's what it's anticipating. And we do all of this in the new heavens and new earth out of love for him that bought us out of our sin and brought us to himself. And it's important to understand, friend, that those that do not trust in Christ have him as Lord and Savior. They will not know that heaven, but they will only know hell, which is God's justice. And so you see, friend, what I hope you see as we kind of wrap up here. The Christian understanding of humanity is neither escapist or fatalistic. We as Christians aren't seeking to escape our humanity, nor do we believe that our humanity is fatally flawed. As Christians, we believe that we have been redeemed, we have been adopted, and we are being restored to the real humanity as God intended it. And so therefore, even in the midst of the darkest of days, we as Christians can have hope. And soon enough, we believe we will have resurrected bodies on a resurrected earth, worshiping a resurrected Jesus forever and ever. And so in the meantime, as we anticipate that, in the meantime, we who are Christians, we we strive to be as heavenly-minded as we can so that we can be the most earthly good that we can. You may have thought I said that backwards. I didn't. We want to picture as a church humanity out in front of Jesus' coming. And by the grace of God, we then fight daily, fight to put off the old Adam and put on the new Adam. You heard Joey pray it, rebuking each other, admonishing each other, praying for each other. Sanctified, being sanctified from one degree of glory to the next. Centering our lives on Him as Lord, not ourselves. And so I wonder, friend, would you like to be come part of that new creation? Would you like to be born again? (laughs) Do you desire, that is, to turn from the sin that brought in sin and death between you and God and the world at large? And do you desire then turn to Christ who is the image of God? Well, if so, friend, we'd love to talk to you about it. He is real. Heaven is real. Hell is real. We'd love to talk to you about these things. So you can talk to me, you can talk to maybe the person that invited you here, maybe the person that invited you to watch this live stream, or if you're online, you don't have anybody to contact, look up in, I think, the upper right-hand corner over here somewhere. Click on that information tab, and we'd love to talk to you more about it. But for those of us that do believe, for you, Restoration Church, do not lose sight of the fact that you have been made alive in Him. Humanity is being, has been redeemed and is being redeemed. You have been born again. Let your baptism, uh, the reminder of your baptism, remind you of that. Listen to Jesus. Find freedom in his atoning sacrifice. Seek to live in the new creation, not the old. Come to Jesus, that is, the author and perfecter of your faith. And as you do, hope in heaven. 
And soon enough, we will be on the shores of the Jordan singing his praises. Let's pray together. Lord God Almighty, we thank you for Christ, the second and greater Adam. We admit, Father, that we are so much like that first Adam. Have mercy on us, and may we trust the Lord Jesus to have life eternal, both now and forever. We pray, God, for those that are weighing out that option of giving their life to Christ and have him be Lord, and they no longer be God-like. Oh, God, give them grace to see and believe and follow. May they be part of that wonderful new creation, we ask, for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.